Welcome to another episode of Talking About Recovery from Alcoholism. My name is Mark, and I'm an alcoholic. And my name is Danny, and I'm an alcoholic. We normally like to open with a little disclaimer, and it's pretty straightforward. This is not AA. AA is not affiliated with us. We do not speak for AA. We're just two different guys. From two different generations. Plus one. With a love for recovery. We are not experts or gurus. One of us, and I won't say which one, is not really <laughs> even that smart. Mark made us write that in there, just so you know. And we'll talk about our experience. Uh, just know that we're still learning. So if your sponsor says something different, go with what your sponsor says. We like to have fun, but we will try and keep this PG-13, despite the fact that alcoholics in general can be pretty R-rated at times. That's right. <laughs> Plus, Mark and I are dear friends. Uh, and as a result, I like to mess with Mark. He likes to mess with me every now and then. So just know that it's in good fun. And today, we've got a very special person here with us. We've got a third party, hopefully long-term, that's going to be helping us out uh, with our podcast. Uh, so today, we've got Seth. Seth, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah. My name's Seth. I'm an alcoholic. Yes, you are. <laughs> I'd like to thank you guys for having me, seriously. We're so excited to have you on board. So just to give uh, Seth a little street cred, so not only is he a fantastic person, but he is also apparently a glutton for punishment because <laughs> one of the things we approached him with beforehand is we're like, you know, since it's your first one, we'd kind of like to make you the whipping boy. And he was like, I am fine with that. Uh, probably because he grew up with a bullwhip in his hand. Now, we're going to try and keep this pretty unclear about where he grew up, what he is, what he looks like, all that jazz. But in all seriousness, uh, he's a great guy. He works a great program. And I just kind of want to throw this out here. When I asked him to do this, uh, Seth actually started a meeting uh, in a homeless shelter here recently. And the only caveat to him accepting to do tonight um, was that it did not interfere with his uh, commitment to chair that meeting and bring those message to those people. Um, so that's my little serious plug there for, for Seth. Appreciate it. Um, and I would it, like to it say... It may be the last time we're going to all day. <laughs> it's, the, it's the last one for sure. Uh, and I would just like to say on a personal level, all the people in that homeless shelter as a result are doomed. So, uh, today we're going to be continuing our session on one of the stories. This one comes straight out of the back of the big book. It is the last story in the AA big book from page 553, and I am going to let Seth get us started. All right. AA taught him to handle sobriety is the title. There's a quote here at the beginning that says, God willing, we may never again deal with drinking, but we may have to deal with sobriety every day. Or, but we have to deal with sobriety every day. When I had been in AA only a short while, an old-timer told me something that has affected my life ever since. AA does not teach us how to handle our drinking, he said. It teaches us how to handle sobriety. Mm. I guess I always knew that the way to handle my drinking was to quit. What? <laughs> what? Hold on. Time out. <clears throat> he always knew the, the way to handle it was to quit? He always knew? Man, that wasn't my story. I did not always know. I always knew I was going to continue to do it forever. 
uh, but I did not know it was to quit. Eventually, I learned <laughs> the way to handle my drinking was to quit, <laughs> but it certainly wasn't always. After my very first drink, a tiny glass of sherry my father gave me to celebrate the new year when I was 13, I went up to bed, dizzy with exhilaration and excitement, and I prayed I wouldn't, ha I wouldn't drink anymore. Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> so this guy is 13 his first time he gets wine drunk. And I don't know about you guys, but the first time that I got wine, it was like an out-of-body experience. It's a whole nother level. But yet, even though he goes up to bed wine drunk, he, he experiences what, Mark? Exhilaration. Exhilaration and excitement. Excitement. That's right. And, and what happens next? He says, I prayed I wouldn't drink anymore. What? What? That's the what? best part. When I was filled with exhilaration and excitement, all I wanted to do was drink again. All the time. All the time. That's the sweet spot, man. <laughs> when you reach the mountaintop, you don't look down and be like, man, I better never do this again. That's the glory. You got to stay in the glory. I know for me, whenever I hit the exhilaration and excitement, that's when I knew I wanted to drink for the rest of my life. The rest of my life. But I did when I reached college age. Much later, when I progressed to full-blown alcoholism, people told me I should quit. Like most other alcoholics, I've known and or I've known I did quit drinking at various times. Once for 10 months on my own and during the other interludes when I was hospitalized. It's no great trick to stop drinking. The trick is to stay stopped. Let's redo that paragraph again. But I did when I reached college age. Much later, when I progressed to full-blown alcoholism, people told me that I should quit. Like most other alcoholics I've known, I did quit drinking at various times. I did. He's throwing it out there. There's some metallics writing. I did quit. I did. And I love how already he's got him lining up to tell him, hey, just throwing this out there. Might want to quit drinking. Might want to quit. I did quit drinking at various times, once for 10 months on my own, and during the other interludes when I was hospitalized. It's so one time he made the decision <laughs> to do it, and one time the decision was made for him because he was in the hospital. Yeah. And so I don't think that's a real accomplishment <laughs> that, that to point out that I was able to not drink when I was hospitalized. Yeah, hopefully he's not counting them as one and the same. Like, <laughs> I did quit. Hold on. I mean, I was in four-point restraints, but I totally quit on my own. Totally. It's no great trick to stop drinking. The trick is to stay stopped. To do that, I had to come to AA to learn how to handle sobriety, which is what I could not handle in the first place. That's why I drank. Yeah, and I love what Bill Wilson said. Bill Wilson said, I knew I was an alcoholic by the way that I felt sober. And just for me, I knew I have to have some sort of way to just handle how weird it gets when I'm sober. It feels like everything's getting tight. Seth starts to irritate me more than he does now, which is quite a bit. Like just the way he breathes starts to get under my skin when I'm sober. I can't understand it. You start out normal, and by the end of the day, you are just an idiot. I just, I can barely look at people like you. I was raised in Kansas, the only child of loving parents who just drank socially. 
We moved frequently. In fact, I changed schools every year until high school. Whoa. That's a lot. That is a lot. In each new place, I was the new kid. A skinny, shy kid to be tested and beaten up. As soon as I had begun to feel accepted, we moved again. So this is this is a part where he's kind of talking about how he's how he grows up. And man, I kind of feel for the kid. I mean, he's moving a lot. And I I mean, this may or may not be true about my story, but allegedly uh, my dad was a part of a branch of service and we moved around a lot. And as a result, I know what it's, first of all, I know what it's like to be the skinny kid, right? Skinny and short. And then this kid's moving every year, not every four years like it was in my story, but every year this kid's moving. And so every time he starts to make some friends, they move again. You know, I can almost feel for him that those type of um, insecurities that have started to develop, you know, and I, I can tell you from my own experience, there were times where I questioned, like, do friendships even really last? You know, because I moved all the time. And so that's what this guy is describing. Not to mention the fact that he's getting beaten up. <laughs> that's, Which, really, that's really the only part of the story that I can uh, relate to because I was not ever the skinny kid. Yeah. Not ever the shy kid. <laughs> However, I was the guy who liked to beat up the new kid to show everybody else how cool I was. Yeah. Yeah. It's, so, really, it's great. It's a great way to win true respect of your peers. That's right. This is just act as sophomore as possible. <laughs> By the time I reached high school, I was an overachiever, an honor student in college. I became editor of the yearbook. I sold my first article to a national magazine while still an undergraduate. I also began to drink at fraternity parties and beer busts. So I think here he's finding kind of his niche, right? He's moving around a lot, so he's not going to be a big social pariah, right? He's kind of finding that books, reading, writing, this is kind of his thing. This is where, you know, and I, I, I heard a guy once say, like, I, he felt like he had a hole inside of him big enough for a Mack truck to drive through. And this guy's talking about that. He's talking about how he's starting to fill those inadequacies with books, with learning, with education. Um, and he's kind of doing well. He's kind of moving up. And then magic starts to happen. And I'm getting excited. Getting excited. Something about fraternity parties? Fraternity <laughs> parties? Oh, boy. Oh. Bookworm, alcoholic, putting them in a frat party. Things are getting good. I'm getting excited. Upon graduation, I ventured to New York to pursue, pursue my writing career. I landed a good job with the company pub publication and was moonlighting on other magazines. Regard, regarded as something of a boy wonder, I began to see myself that way. Mm -hmm. I also began visiting bars after work with my older associates. By age 22, I was a daily drinker. So this reminds me a lot of Bill's story yeah. up to this point. So this guy, he's, he's doing good. He's getting into the school stuff. And I like how he kind of name drops New York. Because I don't care who you are. If somebody says, I'm moving to New York or I'm moving to L.A., you're like, chasing the dream, aren't you? Yep. Chasing the dream. Ventured to New York. <laughs> Ventured to New York. And that's what this guy does. And, and yet still, just like Bill's story, he is a success right yep. he's not like small time like he's going after it and he's getting it you know he's getting it in new york and i love that he's talking about he starts to go to these bars and now it's uh it's, it's kind of a daily deal kind of a, when you're a big deal and it sounds like he's getting there drinking's kind of kind of a big deal too 
So. Well, actually, he's just visiting the bar. Right. <laughs> just visiting. <laughs> and it's work. Work related. Yeah. 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 That's right. They, they, when you do, when you write stuff like this, you got to talk about yeah, things. Dude. I can hear the excuses. I love it. <laughs> All right. Continuing on. Then I joined the Navy and was commissioned as an ensign to write speeches for admirals. Later, I went to sea, serving as gunnery officer on a destroyer escort and emerging as lieutenant commander. I also got into my first disciplinary trouble caused by drinking on two separate occasions. Let's just say, dang, Gina, dang, man. So not only this great writer and he's starting to do well, then he goes and serves his country and is just doing great. I mean, his prospects are out of this world. Goes in as a what? An ensign, starts to write speeches for admirals. Man, this guy's doing really, really well in life. A lieutenant commander. Lieutenant commander. And then he does throw in there, I did get into trouble. a little trouble. First trouble happened to be because of uh, Hershey's chocolate bars. Oh, no, wait. It's because of his drinking. It's because of his drinking. Two separate occasions. Two occasions. No once. No once. He didn't learn much from the first. Yeah. I love how when I'm reading the book with Mark, he will find he will find that extra little thing that you just kind of read over casually. And you're like, yeah, I mean, yeah, this is where he's referencing. And Mark's like, no, you're not paying attention, dude. He's saying twice, back to back. This guy's got two things that go along with drinking. A, a guy told me one time, there is little education in the second kick of a mule. <laughs> <laughs> if you didn't learn it with the first one, you're probably not going to learn it with the second one. And I'm I'm guessing maybe he's not going to either. <laughs> Probably not. In the last year of my Navy service, I was married to a lovely, lively girl who enjoyed drinking. What? Of course. <laughs> what? Why not? What What is this description word that we're seeing here? Lively girl. I. What comes to your mind? Uh, party girl. Party girl. I I I was going 1950. Mine was floozy, floozy. But that's just me. I'm pretty yeah. old Which gentleman. Mean, but you so. were there in the 50s, and the rest of it. <laughs> I, I, was, I, was, I am pretty pretty <clears throat> seasoned. Yeah. I'm a seasoned vet. <laughs> yeah. So he's got he's got the party girl. He's got the drinker. Nice. I'm kind of proud of him. Kind of proud of him. Our courtship was mainly in bars and night spots when my ship was in New York. He <laughs> can't. Even. You can't even take her out on normal dates. You just has to go to the bar. I love it. Oh my goodness. On our honeymoon, we had the ice champagne we had ice champagne by the bedside day and night. Classy. Oh yeah. That's great. The pattern was set. By twenty nine I was having trouble coping with life because of my drinking. Neurotic fears plagued me, and I had occasional un uncontrollable tremors. I read self help books. I turned to religion with fervor. I swore off hard liquor and turned to wine. I got sick of the sweetness and turned to ale. It wasn't strong enough, so I added a shot of vodka and was right back to worse trouble than before. I began sneaking drinks when playing bartender for guests. To cure my dreadful hangovers, I discovered the morning drink. So, so there's a timeline going on here, and I want to kind of point it. I'm big on the timelines in the big book. 13, first drink. First drink was a drunk. Excited him. Made him feel exhilarated. Right? But that was, that was a little too, too much. much. Yeah. <laughs> Gotta got call time out on that. 
Then in his 20s, that's when he starts drinking, right? Frat parties. Mm -hmm. Then he moves to New York a couple of years after college, so four, five-year time period. Now he's, now he's drinking every day, right? What happens at 29? Do you see how short of a time period it is? By the time I was 29, I was having trouble coping with life because of my drinking. That's nine years. That's how quickly alcoholics like myself will burn their life to the ground, right? And this guy's already started. And, you know, it's so much like what we read in the book and more about alcohol. Yes, I was just you know, thinking it's that. all these great things, self-help books, religion, <laughs> the swearing off of hard liquor. I like that part. Yes. Yes, I'm, I'm swearing off, yeah. Yeah, and he turned back to the first thing he got started with, so I turned back to wine. Yeah. Because wine uh, is deep. I don't know if you know that. Wine's deep. It's also religious, so. Nowadays, it would probably be like, you know, Googling how to stop drinking. Um, <laughs> not saying that I did that, just, you know, I know of someone who did. But. Seth, you're only allowed three drokes. That is your first. I hope it's your last. All right, I'll make a mark. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's right. This guy's trying everything. I love that he tried the self-help books. I've got a friend of mine that swears up and down that alcoholics are the entire reason why the self-help book community still makes money, right? I know I had a couple of them. You know, quit drinking with yoga or whatever. Oh, yeah. Whatever it is. I like that this guy tries. I, I tried this. If you haven't tried this, you missed out. <laughs> you missed out. I'm just going to say it. Is going to uh, switch him from vodka to beer. And then I like how he's like, but it was kind of boring. So I added a shot of beer. Vodka. <laughs> I added a shot of vodka. And then he's like, and that got me into trouble real quick. <laughs> he's just like, he's like, hey. I'm going to stop vodka because vodka is bad. So I'm going to just go to beer. Which, I mean, to a sane person, that's not a crazy bad logic. idea. That, that is logical, right? But then when you just add vodka back to it and now you're <laughs> drinking both, it's like double trouble. Kind of defeats the purpose. Right? <laughs> <laughs> a little, the switch. A little. And then the next line is one of my favorites. He began sneaking drinks when playing bartender for guests. Oh my gosh. So I'm guessing that it's in his house. Yeah. So he has guests in the house. He's playing bar bartender and he's got to sneak drinks. In, in his, his own, own house. house. Yeah. While he's having a party. The yeah. reason why you bartend in your house is because you're having friends over. You're having yeah. a good time. And this guy's talking behind the bar, <laughs> taking little nipsies and then coming up and having a shot with everybody else. Man, that for me, that's when I know. When I... So this, just my own personal opinion, I was never taught to hide booze. I instinctively knew it was important and instinctively taught myself how to just be this Sherlock Holmes of like, now that attic would make a good hiding space. And if you haven't tried the top of a toilet tank, are you really an alcoholic? I mean, really, a, a pint of vodka fits perfectly inside there. It keeps it nice and cold. I digress. I personally prefer the bushes outside. That's where I got started. <laughs> Shut up. That's because good. there's lots of things and you can put it way down in there yeah. and nobody knows it's in there yeah. except you. Yeah. And who's going to look in a bush? I mean, neighborhood kids playing hide and go seek, but who else? Yeah. You know, I mean, your gardener, maybe. <laughs> I mean, who knows? My sponsor says he, he has a whole bunch of land and my sponsor says he found bottles for years after he oh, got I sober. Bet. For years, because we're like that. You know, you know, the perfect spot is this bush right here. 
Never see it again. <laughs> this is perfect. Then later on that day, where did I put that? That why am I thinking of shrubberies right now? <laughs> so weird. To cure my dreadful hangovers, I discovered the morning drink. Hair of the dog, baby. That was absolutely when I figured that out. What I a thought, revelation! Well, yeah, it was a revelation. <laughs> <laughs> that is number two. You're only allowed one more. That's right. No, it really was. What when you figure out that you no longer have to wake up to this horrific show called life anymore sober, right? Because I don't know about you guys, but the first couple hours of the day they were kind of awful. But when you wake up and you learn that you can flip the party switch, first thing for me, it was a game changer. Yeah, oh yeah. You guys probably didn't do this, but I always remember getting up in the morning and I would be concerned about brushing the back of my teeth. <laughs> the back of my teeth were important because the night before, I there was some stomach acid applied to the back of my teeth. There's only one problem with, br with uh, brushing the back of your teeth, and that is they will uh, activate the gag reflex. Yes! I was just going to say, you throw up every Here time. Here we go again. Every time. That's right. All right, continuing on. The early promise of the boy wonder faded and my career began to drift. Although my ambition still flickered, it now took f the form of fantasizing. My values became distorted. To wear expensive clothes, to have bartenders know what to serve me before I ordered, to be recognized by head waiters and shown to the best table, to play gin rummy for high stakes, with the insouciance of a riverboat gambler, these were the enduring values in life, I thought. Big shot. I think he's got a case of the big shot-ism. Big shot. What does this guy in a cannon have in common? Big shots, right? First thing he does, comes out, lets you know, I look good, right? You gotta know, I'm going anywhere, I'm looking good. Expensive clothes. Expensive clothes. Not just like, I looked good, I looked sharp. You need to know these cost money. Money. Which you might have, you might not have. I don't know if you know that or not, how much <laughs> these cost. But it's a big deal, right? And then he talks about the bartenders knowing his name. Man, I for me, when you're starting to play that big shotism, this is super important. If drinking's a part of your life, the guys that provide the drinks, they should damn well know me yeah, by absolutely. name. absolutely. Damn well know me by name. And I don't know about you guys, but my personal experience, I, I, I did not have money like this guy had money. Allegedly. <laughs> allegedly. Because we're super anonymous here. We give no details of our life away. I, however, I did have a little liquor store that every time that I came in, she reached for the half gallon or whatever cheap vodka it was and put it right on the thing. And I was like, you damn right. You know who's here. That's right. Get me the good stuff. Get it right away. <laughs> Did you ask her for like a recommendation? No, no, there's no recommendation. I tried it. I know what works. I know what gets me downtown. However, if somebody had to throw in the additive of it's just like aristocrat vodka, only better, that would have hooked me. But, that there, but there is something like that. What? You what? Everclear. <laughs> 100% alcohol. Oh, my God. It will get you there very, very quickly. Yeah, you get downtown right away on that That's stuff. That's right. So oh, yeah. my favorite Everclear story, one of my sponsees when he was drinking <laughs> was trying to find uh, his way through life. So he decided it would be a good idea to buy a liquor store. 
Oh my gosh. <laughs> and he's alcoholic. And, but he miscalculated one thing. When you're working in a liquor store in the state that we live in, that shall remain anonymous. Yes. Uh, you're not allowed to have an open container of alcohol. Oh, that's a shame. Yeah. So he would uh, have a little can of Pepsi there, and he had a, a rat hole that he would shove this bottle of Everclear, and he would put <laughs> the Pepsi, <laughs> Everclear and Pepsi. I love that he's the owner. He's got top shelf at his fingertips, but he's going Everclear. Because <laughs> i got to get downtown right now. Very effective. So he... Um, one night, closed up shop and had a little Pepsi left over, so, and took his Everclear <laughs> home with him. On the way home, he finished the Pepsi, but there was still a little Everclear left, so he needed more Pepsi. So, miraculously, he looks to his right and he sees a Pepsi machine. <laughs> so, he pulls off and he gets some change out and he feeds it in there and he presses the button. And nothing happens. Nothing. Man, I'm already irritated. Yep. I'm not happy. Oh, <laughs> he is so pissed. So he rocked the machine back and forth a few times. <laughs> nothing happened. He goes back. He's got no more change. Oh. oh. So and this is in the days uh, before uh, credit cards and dollar bill changers. So <laughs> if you didn't have the correct change, you weren't getting no Pepsi. Yes. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. You couldn't swipe your card. <laughs> Get out of oh, here, city so boy, Seth. Get out of here. With that. So what's this card you speak yeah. of? <laughs> so um, he gets back in the car and he is fuming. And he turns his lights on and they flash the lights up there on the Pepsi machine. And he's so upset, he, he just puts his car in gear and just rams the Pepsi machine. Oh, awesome. <laughs> and he was hoping maybe the door would come open and he could reach in there and get a Pepsi. No. Well, it didn't. So he backed up again and took a bigger run at it and rammed it again with his car, and nothing happens. So he's he's just he's gonna give up and go home. So he puts his car in reverse, looks in the rearview mirror, and there is a police car parked behind you. <laughs> Shut <me>. up! <laughs> oh my gosh! So that's if I ever were to think about drinking, I don't think it would be ever clear. <laughs> yeah. It obviously makes you stupid. <laughs> There's no social drinking. No social it. drinking there at all. He continues. All right. Bewilderment, fear, and resentment moved into my life, and yet my ability to lie outwardly and to kid myself inwardly grew with every drink I took. Indeed, I had to drink now to live, to cope with the demands of everyday existence. Had to. There's that italics writing it in. He's making it very clear. I had to drink. When I encountered disappointments or frustrations, as I did more and more frequently, my solution was to drink. I had always been oversensitive to criticism and was acutely so now. When I was criticized or reprimanded, the bottle was my refuge and comfort. When I was faced with a special challenge, challenge or social event, such as an important business presentation or dinner party, I had to fortify myself with a couple of belts. Had to get prepared. Oh, yeah. Pre -game. Have a couple of pre-games. That's call right. Pre-game warm-up. Yep. <laughs> Getting ready. <laughs> Too often, I would overdo it and behave badly at the very time I wanted to be at my best. 
For instance, the 50th wedding anniversary of my wife's parents <laughs> was the occasion for a huge family reunion at our home. Despite my wife's entreaties to take it easy, I arrived home in bad shape. Ugh. I remember being dragged, drink in hand, from under the grand piano where I had hidden <laughs> to be locked in my room in disgrace. <laughs> Time out. Time out. Oh, man. So a couple of things have happened here. One, I completely get it. I relate to having an important event that must be kept and getting just sauced and being like, oh, no. Not again. Not again. Not again. I don't know if anybody else has ever pulled the tree down at the family Christmas, but I assure you it's not something that they forget anytime soon. <laughs> and here's the guy is. Now, there's a couple of important things to note. He hides under his grand piano. <laughs> Which means a couple of things. One, he can afford a grand piano. That's a big deal. Yeah. Let's talk about that for a second. Those aren't cheap. So that means vaulted ceilings. He's got a huge home, right? And he goes and he hides underneath. It says it was a huge family reunion at our home. Yeah, his house. With the, so he's doing okay. It's so big, he can have a whole family reunion. It's their 55th wedding 50, anniversary 50th, yeah. 50th an yeah. wedding anniversary and this guy comes in and he's just like oh i gotta go <laughs> he goes right to underneath the grand piano because it doesn't just work for entertaining guests it's also a fort yeah. <laughs> sometimes you have to hide in it and that's what he does and here's what i like what his wife does she gets him like a child. I like I picture like a twelve-year-old being sure. led by the yeah. ear. Yeah, and she takes him up to the room and grounds him <laughs> in his own room. Oh, you notice it says to be locked in my room. <laughs> so she didn't want his ass coming out of there. No, she no. did. Absolutely. Where are you going? Nowhere. Nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Above all, I was suffering inner pain because my performance and my accomplishments in life failed to live up to my own expectations of myself. I had to anesthetize that pain with alcohol. Of course, the more I drank, the more unrealistic my expectations became, and the poorer my performance and the gap widened. So the need to drink grew still greater. So here's what he's saying. The more he drinks the more unrealistic his expectations became and the poorer his performance. So what does that create, Mark? When I'm here and my, and my performance is low believe, and my expectations are high. I believe they refer to that as a gap that widened. That's right. Yeah. That's right. There's this, the Grand Canyon of my actual actions is right in the middle, right? You know, but, you know... Keep in mind here that he had a big house and a grand piano. Yeah. So he was doing something right. He but was. But the fact was, he couldn't keep it up. That's right. It's starting to fall apart now. Yep. It's starting to get real bad. At age 40, I developed a large lump in my pot belly, and I feared it was a tumor. The doctor pronounced it a badly enlarged liver and said I had to quit drinking. I did. I went on the wagon with no outside help and with no real difficulty, <laughs> except... That I didn't enjoy life without drinking. <laughs> time out. Time out. Okay, so he gets a huge... He gets this thing on his liver, right? <clears throat> he feared it was a tumor. And he, and 
Seth, please read it again. So what, what happens uh, when he tries to quit drinking? The doctor pronounce it. He just says very simply, I did. I did. I did. Period. <laughs> Period. <laughs> I want you to know it's no big deal. Yeah. It's really not. It was easy. And there's no difficulty. No but, difficulty. Do well, I need to wait, wait, There's one little thing, what? one small little thing, except I didn't enjoy life without drinking. <laughs> Oh, that might be just like a little thing to keep in mind. It was easy, but I hated my life. That's right. There's no Barry Bonds asterisk <laughs> here, right? Like this guy is not just thrown in. I, I mean, I did. It really wasn't that big of a deal. No big of a deal at all. There was one little thing. <laughs> I got this one thing. I kind of hate everybody and everything, and my life's kind of in shambles. <laughs> but it's just, I can't complain. I can't complain. Besides that, everything's perfect. Everything's <laughs> great. I did. I did. I had to cope with the demands of everyday living without my comforter, my anesthetic, my crutch, and I didn't like it. So when my liver had recovered after 10 months, I resumed drinking. At first, just one drink on occasion. Then drinks came more frequently, but were carefully spaced out. Soon, my drinking was as bad as ever, all day long, every day. I like how right here he's kind of operating like with doctor level safety, right? Like how carefully. it's on the side, carefully timed out drinks. Like on the side of the medicine bottle where it's like, take one every four hours. He's like, oh, I will, <laughs> to the D, very carefully. The thing that strikes me is that it's like, he's using perfect logic. Yeah, logical. First, just one drink on occasion. Yep. And then a few more drinks, but carefully spaced out yep and then my drinking was all day every day <laughs> that's somewhere on the logic scale that last one kind of fell off since the doctor <laughs> told him that he had to quit drinking in the previous paragraph yeah and here's the important thing to remember too so what mark's talking about there's the logic i would ask where does the alcoholic kick in and this is just my humble opinion it's when he goes from one to a couple right what decision prompted that? Where did that come from when I'm having success? Bump it up a notch, right? Of course. Right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Everything's fine. I'm being the doctor. I'm spacing it out just right. And then, you know, this goes so well. I think we need to celebrate. <laughs> a friend of mine used to say, let's turn up the fun dial. <laughs> what? And I think that's what he wanted to do. He wanted to turn that fun dial yeah. up from one to couple to let's break the dial. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I was trying frantically to control it. And it had gone underground now because everyone knew I shouldn't be drinking. Oh, that's it. It's that's the, the bad time. They found him out. That's right. When they find you out, that is a bad day. When everybody knows that you shouldn't drink, that's a bad day. But he didn't know he shouldn't be drinking. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, I've got this thing on my Everybody liver. else knew it, but uh, he said, I didn't know because I'm, he's trying frantically to control it. I did. I mean, he says it. I did. I did. I did. Period. <laughs> I don't know if you know how to punctuate, but period means end the sentence. <laughs> Boom. I did. I did. And <laughs> I, I don't really like anybody. I hate my life, but I did. Instead of drinking in fancy bars and clubs, I had to carry a bottle of vodka in my briefcase, <laughs> duck into public toilets, and gulp from the bottle, trembling in order to keep from falling apart. 
I love this. Still the businessman. Still forever the businessman. He's got the booze in the case. That's classy. And I'm just saying for myself, I've had to do exactly what this guy's talking about. And there is no social drinking in the hearty stall. There's just not. <laughs> they don't have those little swizzle stick things so you can... Like, mix it up, you know? I mean, maybe in the Hardy's where Seth goes. Yeah. yeah Fancy right. pants right. over here. Over the next two years, I was sickened rapidly. The enlargement of my liver degenerated into cirrhosis. I vomited every morning. I could not face food. I suffered frequent blackouts. I had severe nosebleeds. Bruises appeared mysteriously over my body. I became so weak I could barely drag myself around. Stop. Time out. Let's just say it. Damn. Damn. Let's take a moment to reel back what this guy's saying. So after all this, this guy's reached the start. And this reminds me so much of Bill's story to where he's talking about being this big success. And then he's talking about how things are just physically awful, right? He's vomiting all the time. He can't face food. He's getting blackouts left and right. And I like the part in Bill's story where he's like, gradually things got worse. <laughs> I wasn't even done. And that's what's happened. I love this part too. Mark and I talked about this on the last story that, that we read. He said, I could barely drag myself around. I don't even walk anymore. I'm such a lush. Right? I'm doing the worm to get to the I imagine him the just bathroom. crawling around his yes. house. Yes. I mean, yes. So Pathetic talk, level You talked about drinking. timelines a minute ago. So yep. at age 22, he was a daily drinker. Mm -hmm. You know, at 29, he was having trouble coping with life. Yep. You know, by 40, he had the large lump. And then he recovered 10 months later. And within the, over the next two years, he sickened rapidly. Yep. So this is this whole thing was in a 20-year period. Yeah. And, and the pain was always there. Yep. Going full tilt bogey from the start. Absolutely. My employer gave me one warning, then another. My children avoided me. When I awoke in the middle of the night with the shakes and sweats and fears, I would hear my wife weeping quietly in bed beside me. My doctor warned me that if I kept on, I might have esophageal hemorrhaging and die. But now all choice was gone. I had to drink. Again, I gotta say it, double damn. damn, damn, damn. So his employer's warning him, and this is the sad part for me, and it's not just because I'm a parent now, allegedly, it's because, think about the innocence of kids, right? And if your kids are scared to be around you, what's it become like in his alcoholic home? It's so bad that, it's so bad that his wife is crying when he's getting into bed. It doesn't say that she turns over and yells at him. That time's long since passed. This is the past of desperation and acceptance to where it's always gonna be this way. And this drunk monster will always get into bed with me. The guy that my kids are afraid of. And I gotta be honest, now that I'm sober, I feel for his wife in ways that I couldn't when I was drinking. What my doctor had warned me about finally happened. I was attending a convention in Chicago and carousing day and night. Suddenly, I began vomiting and losing rectally great quantities of blood. <laughs> Rectum? Damn, Damn near killed him! <laughs> oh my gosh. This is gross. Gross. I get it. 
But I mean, this guy's really driving it home. It's not just coming. And let's talk about what an esophageal hemorrhage is here real quick. Just for any of you audience members who haven't had it, this alcoholic has. What an esophageal hemorrhage is, is essentially where you drink and the, the windpipe, your esophagus that goes from your, your mouth to your stomach, you rot it out, you wear it thin with alcohol to where it creates these little holes, these scabs if you want to, of open wounds inside of your uh, inside of your esophagus and you start bleeding inside of your throat, inside of the pole that runs from your mouth to your stomach. And there is, aside from a little bit of medical help, other than the body fixing itself, there's nothing you can do about it. There's nothing you can do about it. And when I went and saw a doctor, uh, because I have personal experience, I can relate with this guy a lot actually, my doctor told me, he was like, yeah, it kills nine out of 10 people. I had it for over a year. I just figured it was because I drank a lot. Maybe drinking makes your like gums bloody. I kind of came up with some stuff. I got into some fights. So maybe that's why I have blood in my mouth all the time. I would take a bite of these sandwiches and it would look like that somebody put ketchup on the edge of my sandwich. And I thought that was really strange because I don't remember somebody putting ketchup. It was blood. I had blood coming out of my mouth and going into my stomach for a long period of time. And this guy has that. And not just that, <laughs> he's bleeding out the backside <laughs> at a conference of peers as he's carousing. He's coming out the other way. Ew. Ew. It's a little hard to cover up. <laughs> I'm not sure I could cover that up very well. No Clorox wipes are taking that out. <laughs> no. Those expensive clothes won't do you much good. <laughs> Unless they're crimson red. <laughs> Unless it, when it starts coming at your backside. Yeah, that's right. Hopeless now. I felt it would be, a, be better for my wife, my children, and everyone in my life if I went ahead and died. I found myself being lifted onto a stretcher and whisked away in an ambulance to a strange hospital. I woke the next day with tubes in both arms. You ever feel like that, guys? You ever get to the point to where you just kind of wish you were dead and maybe think it'd be better for your family and your friends if you were? Yep. It's a common theme that I've heard at lots and lots of meetings. Yep. Too chicken to do it myself. But you know what? If I woke up or if I didn't wake up tomorrow, I'd be okay with that. Within a week, I was feeling well enough to go home. The doctors told me that if I ever took another drink, it might be my last. I thought I had learned my lesson, but my thinking was still confused and I was still unable to deal with everyday living without help. Within two months, I was drinking again. In the next half year, I experienced two more esophageal hemorrhages, miraculously surviving each one by a hair. Okay. So, so, so 9 out of 10 is what my doctor gave me. And that might have been not the actual specific statistics. He could have just been painting a picture. But let's just go with that number for now. So you're playing Russian roulette to where you have a 10-barrel gun and 9 of them are full. 9 of them have bullets. And somehow, you're first. You miraculously spin that barrel and you land on the one empty slot. And you go at it two more times. And people say... God doesn't love alcoholics. I think this story begs to differ. Yep. I, at least in my case, he was watching over me for a long time. Each time I went back to drinking, even smuggling a bottle of vodka into the hospital as soon as the blood transfusions had ceased. <laughs> <laughs> he can't 
can't even wait. He's just like, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. Oh, that's my alky. That's my type of alky. My doctor finally declared he could no longer be responsible for me and sent me to a psychiatrist who practiced in the same suite of offices. Well, that <laughs> this, this reminds me a lot of the doctor's opinion where he's like, I would have tried to not see you. <laughs> I don't even like treating people like you. And he's like, <clears throat> I mean, you can go, you can go down the hall. There's, there's a guy down there. Yeah, you know what? You know what? Go see that guy. Go see that guy. I can't do anything for you. I'm done. I'm done. I'm wasting my time. That's right. He happened to be, by the grace of God, Dr. Harry Tebow, the psychiatrist who probably knew more about alcoholism than any other in the world. At that very time, he was a non-alcoholic trustee on the General Service Board of Alcoholics Anonymous. Thank you for your service, Dr. Tebow. We are forever in your debt. The thing that shocks me is he's probably to find this one guy. He is the luckiest guy. Oh, my gosh. There's probably not many other people who could have helped him at that particular moment. And he got right place, right time. I heard an old-timer one time say that an alcoholic getting and staying sober is like winning all the world's lotteries at the same time. And that definitely seems to be the case for this guy. I mean, he's three back-to-back -back esophageal hemorrhages, and now the doctor kicks him out to go down the hall, and who's down the hall? Just happens to be a general service trustee. What a miracle. It was the late Dr. Tebow then who persuaded me to seek help through AA. I acquired a sponsor and began attending meetings but continued to drink. Within a few days, I found myself drying out on a drunk farm. While there, I read the big book and the grapevine and began, to, began the slow road back to health and sanity through the recovery program of AA. And let's take a little minute here just to, uh, this is a soapbox. I had to ask permission. I had to ask the group's permission if I could get on this soapbox. I try not to do these too often, but I am going to say thank goodness for non-alcoholic people that have the courage to refer people to AA. We are forever, forever in your debt. And I know we make a lot of Al-Anon jokes, and I've been to some of their meetings. They have really good ones about us. They have really good ones about us. But the truth is, I wouldn't be here if a non-alcoholic, a member of Al-Anon, hadn't have told my mom that your son's an alcoholic and he's got to go to AA. And I'm forever in their debt. As the sober days grew into sober months and then into sober years, a new and beautiful life began to emerge from the shambles of my former existence. The relationship between my wife and me was restored to love and happiness that we had not known even before my alcoholism became acute. She no longer weeps in the night. As our children grew up, I was able to be a father to them when they most needed one. My company advanced me rapidly once my reliability was established again. Regaining my health, I became an avid jogger, sailor, and skier. All right, let's talk about the miracles that we just we just went over so many. So let's start with what I think is one of the biggest ones. Let's go back to the story to where his wife is doing what in her bed when he weeping, lays down? Weeping. Weeping. Crying. That's right. His wife is crying when he gets into bed with her. Now, not only has his relationship with his wife been restored, but I love that he puts here in parentheses because he knows it was a big deal. Yeah. 
He put this in the story to tell you like, yeah, it's that bad. I was that guy. My wife cried when I got into bed and he lets you know she doesn't weep at night anymore. You know, my kids have a dad. When they needed one the most, I got to be a dad for my kids. So they talk about the miracle of AA. And to me, that, that first sentence just describes it so beautifully. As the sober days grew into sober months and then into sober years, a new and beautiful life began to emerge from the shambles of my former existence. Absolutely. I mean, for me, at the very least, AA didn't just save my life. It transformed it into a life worth living. And that's what this guy's talking about here. And I absolutely love it. And at the very end, there's a very important thing for guys like Seth to pay attention to. Okay? What is the very last sentence, Seth? Could you read it? I became an avid jogger, sailor, and skier. And Seth, just out of curiosity, since you read the story, was that before or after he started working the program of AA? After, as as a result of. Oh, Oh, okay, so not not in the beginning. Like, I'm too busy to go to meetings because I'm jogging or because I'm skiing. He built the foundation, and as a result, this wonderful thing grew up around him, right? And that's what he's talking about. So I I love that, and we had to point it out. This is after you've worked the 12 steps of AA. All right, continuing on. All these things and many, many more AA gave me, but above all, it taught me how to handle sobriety. I have learned how to relate to people. Before AA, I could never do that comfortably without alcohol. I have learned to deal with disappointments and problems that once would have sent me right to the bottle. I have come to realize that the name of the game is not so much to stop drinking as to stay sober. Alcoholics can stop drinking in many places, in many ways, but Alcoholics Anonymous offers us a way to stay sober. So he's starting to paint a picture here. He's starting to tell us what happens as a result of working the 12 steps. And I love that the first thing he talks about is like, I can relate to people. You know, I feel at one with my fellow man, and that's a big deal. For me, I use drinking as a social lubricant. It worked fantastic for that. Whatever courage I didn't have, I had better. And then all of a sudden you take drinking away from me. And I don't know about you guys, I felt different. I felt really weird, really uncomfortable, and really introverted. And through working this 12 steps, I was able to relate to people again and just have normal conversations without pulling my hair out or rubbing one of my I used to rub one of my eyebrows it was my newcomer twitch I would rub my left eyebrow when I would share and talk to people and stare at the ground finally an old timer came up to me and he was like you gotta stop you're gonna rub that thing off man that we are worried about your left eyebrow that's legitimate (laughs) that really happened I saw a funny t-shirt that said uh, technically alcohol is a solution is a solution (laughs) yes (laughs) (laughs) And it was my solution. Yeah. And so when you took my solution away, Mm -hmm. all I was left with was the problem. And with the problem, I had to replace it. I had to find, it talks about in in the 12 and 12, I had to find a suitable replacement. Yep. Sufficient substitute. That I could, that I, yeah, that's right. That I have, can, can, and that's what AA AA has given to me. Absolutely. God willing, we members of AA may never again have to deal with drinking, but we have to deal with sobriety every day. How do we do it? How do we do it? 
by learning through practicing the 12 steps and one more time at meetings. one more time how do we do it by learning through practicing the 12 steps and through sharing at meetings there we go how to cope with the problems that we looked to booze to solve back in our drinking days so i wonder just it's a quandary i get a quagmire so do you think a 12 step program that they're 12 steps might be what it's all about. I think that's what it's trying to say. How do we do it? By learning through practicing the 12 steps and through sharing at meetings. Absolutely. For example, we are told in AA that we cannot afford resentments and self-pity. So we learn number one offender. Number yep. one. So we learn to avoid these festering mental attitudes. Similarly, we rid ourselves of guilt and remorse as we clean out the garbage from our minds through the fourth and fifth steps of our recovery program. I love that. I love that description, right? The garbage man yep. taking out the trash with the fourth and the fifth step. You know, one of the best um, little definitions I heard given about it was, Danny, this is the stuff that you're no longer going to be. These are the things that you can have God's help to get better and take that trash out. And I love that. I love that the worst parts of my fourth and my fifth step are my greatest assets nowadays. For example, we are told in AA that we cannot afford resentments and self-pity. So we learn to avoid these festering mental attitudes. Similarly, we rid ourselves of guilt and remorse as we clean out the garbage from our minds through the fourth and fifth steps of our recovery program. We learn how to level out emotional swings that got us into trouble, both when we were up and when we were down. We are taught to differentiate between our wants, which are never satisfied, and our needs, which are always provided for. That's my favorite line, so I'm going to have you say it again. We are taught to differentiate between our wants which are never satisfied, and our needs, which are always provided for. Man, I love that. And that is such a good day. For me, I love what I have. I love it. I love, And I love that AA has given me an appreciation to love what I have, as opposed to just always reaching out. It's not good enough. It's not good enough. But to love what I have means so much to me. I remember when I was about 13 years old, I wanted a bike so badly. I wanted a Schwinn Varsity 10-speed bicycle. Oh, that sounds awesome. Pre preferably in a green color. Oh, the girls like green. <laughs> and uh, I wanted it so bad. And, I mean, I fantasized about it. And I I worked to, to try to put together some money to buy it, which I never did. And I finally got it for my birthday. Nice. I was so happy. But you know, once I had it, <laughs> nobody thought it was as cool as I did. Mm. And so, you know, I'm like leaving it out in the in the yard uh, when I come home from right. school and my dad comes home from work and he's going, you wanted that bike so bad. You said you'd always take care of it. You'd like wash it every day. Yeah. But you know, the fact is, once I got it, it was never that important to me again. Yep. And I think that's the way our wants are, you know. We're never, I mean, once you get what you think you want, it's not enough. It's never, never. enough. Yep. But the fact is, you know, your needs are provided for. Absolutely. Every day. Every day.
Maybe not in the way that I think they should be. And that's that. That's the rub. That that's is the, rub. the problem. Is I don't <laughs> get the stuff in the way that I had envisioned. Uh, God, I don't know if you checked the script, uh, but I was pretty clear about how I laid this all out for you to do my bidding. And uh, I got a friend that says, give an alcoholic a Ferrari and in a week it'll be the wrong color. <laughs> oh, That's it. We cast off the burdens of the past and the anxieties of the future as we begin to live in the present one day at a time. We are granted the serenity to accept the things we cannot change and thus our quickness to anger and our sensitivity to criticism. A so I, I just have to say the one thing. So we focus so much on accepting the things we cannot change. One of the great gifts I was given is the ability to recognize. To differentiate. That's right. Between the things that I can change and the things I can't. Yep. And I thought when I first came here that it was you were giving this responsibility to me to decide which of these bastards needs to be changed. <laughs> <laughs> and it, honest to God, it was like a year later, it was I was sitting, doing some step work, and it occurred to me, you know, I don't think that's what they meant at all. <laughs> <laughs> I think what they meant was, I'm supposed to fix my stuff mm. and leave other people alone. Mm. And so when it says, we lose our quickness to anger and our sensitivity to criticism mm. because we are not trying to act on things that we're not supposed to act on. Yeah. And this old timer lady say, what's past the end of your nose is none of your damn business anymore. And I was like, yes, ma'am. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Above all, we reject fantasizing and accept reality. The more I drank, the more I fantasized everything. I imagined getting even for hurts and rejections. In my mind's eye, I played and replayed scenes in which I was plucked magically from the bar where I stood nursing a drink and was instantly exalted to some position of power and prestige. <laughs> Wow. The alcoholic teleportation in full flight. I love that the first thing he does is he references, and if you haven't done this, come over to my house here at the back cave where it's completely anonymous. Nobody knows where the entrance is. And I will tell you about how to get even because I fantasized my entire life about getting even. And I love that he references it. He knows how my mind works. He knows how Seth's... He might not know how Seth's mind works because it's weird, <laughs> but he knows how Mark's mind works, right? He knows that we dream about this all the time. Getting, getting back. Getting them good. Because how dare you? How dare you? Don't you know who I am? <laughs> I refer to that as... Plot, plotting the demise of the rotten bastards. <laughs> <laughs> On Mark and I's tombstone, it's going to say, it was the principle of the thing. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and then this guy's talking about how he's transported, plucked magically from a bar where he stood nursing a drink and instantly exalted to a position of power and prestige. And I like to call this getting discovered, which is what I used to fantasize about all the time. I just thought I was a movie waiting to happen. And at any moment, I used to have these weird fantasies where I'd be like either accepting an Oscar or like winning the World Cup or 
the World Series. I don't even play baseball. And I would fantasize about winning the World <laughs> Series, right? And I'd be in a place of prestige and power. And usually, when they're looking for people for a position of power and prestige, they're going to go looking for them in a bar. Yeah, in a bar. Get the drunkest guy on the end. You see that guy over there, the one with the, the pot belly? No, no, no. The one under the grand piano. <laughs> <laughs> That's the guy. That's the guy we That's want. That's the guy. I lived in a dream world. AA led me gently from this fantasy from this fantasizing to embrace reality with open arms. And I found it beautiful, for at last I was at peace with myself and with others and with God. And what an ending. What a powerful way to put that. Seth, would you please read those last three things? I was at peace with myself, with others, and with God. Doesn't get any better than that, right? Getting right with myself, taking out that garbage with the fourth and the fifth step so I can become okay by making the amends and knowing that it's okay for me to look you in the eyes once again. And then this is for me. I'm going to go out on a limb here. This is a big one for me is when he says, and with others, right? Because I've gotten right with myself a couple of times while I was drinking. But you idiots have just, I, I don't know how many days I have just sat plotting your demise just because you just don't do it right. You don't do, just the way that Seth is sitting right now would have <laughs> irritated me back in the day. So for this guy to get right with himself and with others and now with God, that's a big deal. You know, I can talk for myself here personally. I, my, my father just passed away and, you know, it was... It was a good funeral, and I was happy for the time that I had him with me here on this earth. I didn't shake my hands at the heaven doing that like Lieutenant Dan moment off of Forrest Gump where he's like, we gotta talk. Like, it wasn't like that. You know, I was at peace with God, and that's a powerful message. So, Mark, you want to give us a real quick recap of the story? So, you know, it's uh, the last thing, the last line. I like to think of that as living in the sunlight of the Spirit. Absolutely. And I think that's, you know, the, the guy the guy has a story like so many of our stories. I mean, it, it uh, took a period of time, and he didn't want to be here, and he had every reason to quit, and he didn't. And uh, he dodged some serious bullets Holy along cow. the way. And uh, finally, the, the doctor who was treating him said, you know, I'm done. Yep. I can't help you anymore. And I think sometimes that's what we need. Yep. We need somebody to say, you know, you're 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 going to have to do it on your own. Yep. And you're going to need somebody greater than you. Yep. And that's what the program Alcoholics Anonymous will give you. Absolutely. And that ends the story of AA taught him to handle sobriety. I don't do this and okay. this it'll just put it on top of the other one no worries ready yep and this begins another segment of worth repeating this is where we hear things that we like and we repeat them to our friends so I will let Mark start I like words and sometimes a clever word really sticks in my mind. And so I, I heard a lady talking about her circumstance 
and she referred to it as her victim stance. <laughs> so the victim stance creates a situation where you are being wronged upon. <laughs> I love it. And the other one I liked was uh, no future tripping. <laughs> and I be, we need to be here now. Yes. And I, I, I sometimes find myself future tripping. Yes. <laughs> so just remember, victim stance and future tripping. <laughs> That's really good. All right, Seth. All right, mine is to talk the talk, use your mouth. And to walk the walk, you take the steps. Ooh. That's a uh, that's a really good one because for me, I, I don't know any other way to to recover and change my life than taking the steps. I mean, that's how I was that's how I was taught, and um, that's how I've seen it work in countless other people's lives. You know, and and to take the steps means to take the actions that are mentioned in the in the book or in the steps. Um, not just reading them, but taking the action. I think that's super important too. Um, and one more time, that's to talk the talk, you use your mouth, and to walk the walk, you take the steps. Dang, city boy Seth came out swinging. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I've got two quick ones here, and we'll end. The first one is this is a simple program for complicated people. And I know that pertains to Seth. So again, this is a simple program for complicated people. And one of my favorite all-time sayings is the gift is in the giving. Oh, yeah. And that has definitely been my circumstance. The gift is in the giving. And this ends another segment of Worth Repeating.